We are talking about prayer, and this is the last sermon in the series entitled The Recipe for Prayer. And if you're going to uh, put something on social media, please use the hashtag The Recipe for Prayer, and we'll get to see what you wrote, okay? Sermon notes, info at bridgechurch.cc, and again, as we always say, that is a email address that you can use to communicate with us about anything, so we'd love to hear from you. Let's go back and do a quick review. Um, what kind of prayer changes our life? What kind of prayer empowers us? And uh, we have given you three ingredients of this awesome recipe. Number one, preparation. Remember what we're talking about. We are talking about Jesus, and we are talking about his prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane right before he was arrested, right before he was tried, right before he was crucified. This amazing passage of Scripture that describes an incredible time of prayer, the most intense, no doubt, time of prayer in the life of Jesus on this earth. We're going to talk about it more today. But the first ingredient was preparation. Jesus was about to face the darkest time in his life on the earth, and he prepared for this dark time through prayer. As a matter of fact, and we'll point it out more in just a minute, he was actually battling temptation in the Garden of Gethsemane. You remember where he said, Father, if it be your will, let this cup pass from me. So that lets us know there was a struggle going on with him. Then he said, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. And that um, uh, lets us know that there was this huge struggle going on within Jesus, within the humanity of Jesus. The second thing we talked about was consternation because when you use your prayer journal, which we talked about the prayer journal in the first sermon, how to build one, how to develop one. We talked about the fruits of a prayer journal, what it'll do for you. If you didn't hear that message, go back and listen to it. And then we said that if you work your prayer journal, if you use it, then you're going to get closer to God. And when you get closer to God, you think like God, you perceive like God, you see things the way God does. So even though you're enjoying this new intimate relationship with God because of your newfound prayer life, you're also going to have some, some um, a disturbance going on inside of you. Uh, a troubled spirit will go on inside of you because your intimate relationship with God. And, it, and that is because you will become burdened about things you weren't burdened about before. In other words, you will care about things you didn't really care that much about before, but because of your closeness with God, there will be consternation, preparation, then consternation. Last week, we talked about Jesus saying, not my will, Father, but your will be done. And we talked about submission. We talked from the book of Philippians and Hebrews and um, the Old Testament in Psalms, and we covered a lot of information there, really making the point last week that submission or humility in your life is a key ingredient in getting your prayers heard by God and getting those prayers responded to. Today what we want to talk about is restoration. So we're going to go back to the book of Luke. This is the final message. And next week, boy, you guys ready for next week? You ready? You know what we're preaching on? Pastor Andy tell you? All right. Brace yourself. Get ready. It's about to get real up in here. So come on. Three women approached me. Their, their husbands were standing right there. Three women came up to me and said, no homework. <laughs> and I said to them, do you see the smiling people? 
And they said, yeah, I see people smiling. I said, they're the ones who are doing homework. <laughs> and the men said, amen. amen. And the ladies said, oh, me. All right. So next week's going to get real. It's going to get real. So come on. How many of you know God wants us to know what he thinks about that topic? How many of you know the world will sure tell you what they think about it? So we got to talk about it in the church. we got to preach on it. And I've been working on that sermon this week, so I'm ready to preach right now. But I'm not. I'm going to preach on this today because it's so good. This is so good what we're going to look at today. Let's read Luke 22. Let's start in verse 39, New American Standard Bible. And he came out and proceeded, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives. And the disciples also followed him. When he arrived at the place, he said to them, notice this word temptation keeps coming up in this passage. Pray, you disciples pray, because you're going to be tested. You're about to be tested. You're about to be tried. You are about to be tempted. So pray that you may not enter into or give into or submit to this testing, this trial. Verse 41. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw, and he, Jesus, knelt down and began to pray, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. Verse 43, and this verse 43 is really our key verse today. Not, now an angel from heaven appeared to him. Verse 43, now an angel appeared to him. What? strengthening or restoring him. And being in agony, he was praying very fervently, agony and fervently. And his sweat became like drops of blood falling down upon the ground. When he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping from sorrow and said to them, why are you sleeping? Get up and pray that you may not enter into temptation. There were angels at his birth. They announced it. There were angels at his resurrection. They were at the tomb. So we could say that Jesus commenced his ministry with angels and Jesus concluded his ministry on the earth with angels. And then when I look at those two huge events in his life, his birth and his resurrection, you only find two other times that angels appeared to Jesus between his birth and his resurrection. And both times that the angels appeared to him, it was during a time of trial. It was during a time of testing. It was during a time of temptation. And so we find him in the wilderness first. He had lived his life. He was about to embark on an earthly ministry that would only last three and a half years. And he is in the wilderness. That's how he begins his ministry. It's amazing, really, when you think about it. In this sermon that we're talking about today, he's preparing for the darkest hour of his life. And how does he prepare? Prayer. He prepares through prayer. We look at him about to embark on his earthly ministry. What does he do? He spends 40 days in prayer and fasting. <clears throat> what an example, what an amazing example he is to us. 
And we're going to go through the wilderness. We're going to go through wilderness. So Jesus is in the wilderness. Matthew 4 records it. Mark 1 records it. Luke 4 records it. And the Bible says this, at the end of that 40 days after Satan had come and tempted him, and this is something I'm going to share with you that you can do on your own, a little study. Jesus tempted him how many times? Three times. When you study the way Satan tempted Jesus, if you will go then to the writings of John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, before the book of Revelation, he talks about three ways we are tempted. We are tempted with the pride of life, the lust of the flesh, and the lust of the eyes. If you will go and study those three ways we are tempted, you will find those are the exact same three ways Jesus was tempted back in Luke 4. The same way Jesus was tempted is the same way we are tempted. Now, personally, my personal belief is that Jesus could never sin because of who he was. However, we do know he was tempted. The Bible says it. I mean, the Bible's really clear. The Bible doesn't leave us wondering about this. It says he was tempted in all points like as we are. So here's Jesus being tempted in the wilderness, and, and Satan comes to him and and. You know, it's just so incredible, and I'm feeling like I want to preach on this, so i got to back up and make sure I don't. But I love how the Bible not only gives us the example that Jesus was tempted, but it also shows us through Jesus how to defeat temptation. And there was something he said every time Satan tempted him in the wilderness, there was something Jesus said every time. It is written. So what is that? Word of God. The Bible. The Word of God. It is written, and that's how he defeated him, with the word of God. That's why it's so important for you to know the word. That's why it's so important that we make available to you all kind of resources and free resources. You know, we got a bookstore, and we love it when you go in there and purchase something, and that's great. But, man, we just offer tons of free stuff, especially as it relates to the Right Now Media. And if you're not hooked up with Right Now Media, all you got to do is call us, and we'll get you hooked up. And that's free, and that's something we pay for so you can have it in your home. And so you can have it wherever you're going, on your phone, wherever, and you can constantly be learning, 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 going deeper, deeper, deeper in your relationship with God. So we make those, those things available to you. And I love this story where it shows us how Jesus used the Word of God to defeat the enemy, but he also defeated the enemy because he had been in prayer. He's our example. And the Bible says at the end of that time with Satan, the Bible says, Angels came and ministered to him. And then we find it again here in the garden. He's being tempted here. What is his temptation in the garden? His temptation here was to hold on to his holy rights. His temptation here was not to bear our sin on the cross, was not to become sin for us or be made sin for us. He was, he was going through this time in his humanity where he was crying out to the Father, if there's any other way Pharaoh can become a Christian other than me going through all that I'm about to go through, let this cup pass from me. And then he says in submission, what does he say? Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. And we talked about that last week. So what is the significance then of the appearance of this angel in the garden? Because i got to tell you, when I read this, it tells me nothing about what the angel did. I do know one thing the angel did. Every time an angel appears, he does this. That's all I know. So the angel appears in the garden. I don't know what he did. The Bible says he strengthened him and, 
and he restored Jesus, but I, I don't know what that looked like or I don't know how it physically happened or if there was some kind of physical thing he did or words that were spoken. It doesn't say. I don't know what the angels did when they showed up in the temptation in the wilderness. It doesn't say. It just says they restored him. The angels restored him. They strengthened him. But I think it's accurate in both cases to assume that the angel was sent from the Father in both those situations to affirm the Son and to say to the Son Jesus, I love you, I love you, I care for you, I have not left you, I have not forsaken you, I'm here with you. Jesus was restored, no doubt, by that affirmation. Jesus was strengthened, no doubt, by the presence of those angels bringing that message because the horror of all horrors for Jesus is the thought of being separated from the Father. So there was this assurance that the Father is with you. The appearance of the angels both in the wilderness and the garden affirmed his love and care for Jesus. The angels came with strength. They came with restoration. Saying to Jesus, listen, everything you want, you will get. Everything you deserve will come. Everything you're entitled to will be yours. The ministry of these angels here in the garden assured Jesus that though the Father as prophesied in Genesis 3, though the Father had allow, is allowing Jesus to be bruised, and you know that that scripture is in the book of Genesis. When man sinned in the Garden of Eden, uh, the Bible says that the Father spoke and gave forth the word that there would come one whose heel would crush the head of the serpent, but the serpent would bruise the heel. And he said, I, I, you know there was going to be a bruising, and this is the bruising, but I want to tell you, you will not ultimately be taken under. I will never leave you. I will never abandon you. I think it's interesting that um, Jesus, the one who, and let me tell you these things the Bible says about Jesus in relation to angels. He was above the angels, the Bible says. He was better than the angels, the Bible says. He was more excellent. His name was more excellent than the angels. And the Bible says that he was worshipped by angels. And I just think it's so cool that with all that in us, and we know that truth, that here are those angels sent by the Father to strengthen Jesus, to restore Jesus. Jesus. And right here in the middle of this garden prayer, Jesus experiences divine restoration, divine strength, supernatural strength. Why did he need the strength? Because Jesus was human. And Jesus' capacity in his human body, in that human capacity, he would not have survived this time physically. I mean, he says in the Word of God, and we'll talk about it in a minute in Mark 14, 34, he talks about striving in prayer until it almost killed him. So he needed this strength. He needed this supernatural strength, and this speaks to us today. How severe was the struggle Jesus went through? I mean, Pastor, really, was it that bad? Why did he need an angel to come? Well, Luke, we're reading the... Uh, the uh, story of Luke here, the, the, the version that Luke gives us. And Luke was a what? How many of you know what Luke did for a living? He was a doctor. 
Luke was a physician. And in verse 44, the physician, the doctor Luke, tells us Jesus was in agony in the garden praying. He was in agony. So we got to look at that word agony. We got to look at that and say, what does that mean? I mean, you know, when God puts a word in the Bible, he doesn't just throw a word in haphazardly. If you'll learn to do some word studies, if you'll just get yourself an amplified Bible, I mean, that does a lot of the work for you and dig into those words. That word agony right there, when you really study that in the original language, it means to be in combat unto death. To be in combat unto death. So let's read it that way. And Jesus being in combat unto death. You say, Pastor, you keep bringing up that Jesus was actually threatened physically to survive this. Look what he said. Look what Jesus said in Mark 14, 34. He said, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. And also it says in this passage I read to you that Jesus prayed fervently. Fervently. So you look at the word fervently and you realize when you look at it with any kind of depth at all that it's a medical term. And the word fervently means stretching your muscles to the max of their capacity. Jesus can't pray any harder. Jesus can't pray with any more intensity. He can't pray any more intently. He's praying to the max. He's praying to the limits of his own capability. And the Bible says it is at that moment when he is praying to the maximum degree that he is able to pray that his sweat became like drops of blood falling down on the ground. The praying of Jesus here, ladies and gentlemen, please get this, was so extreme. His prayer was so intense. The torture of this temptation, this temptation to resist the letting go of his holy rights and becoming sin for us is so taxing on him. His prayer to the Father is so passionate, crying out, that his body literally begins to show the physical effects of that kind of prayer. The magnitude of his struggle, listen, to accept my sin on the cross. Do you understand as much as you can the root of this struggle? I mean, there was the, there was the humiliation surrounding the cross. There was the there was the pain. There was the whipping of his back. They beat him with what was called a cat of nine tails and it was a handle with strips of leather hanging down and at the end of each strip of leather was a piece of bone or a piece of stone and when you would wrap it around a man it would grab his flesh and then you would pull it back and they say that when Jesus was finished that day that skin was just hanging down from him. He knew all that was coming. Some men died at the whipping post and never made it to the cross. But Jesus couldn't die at the whipping post because the prophecy was in the Old Testament. They pulled the beard from his face by the handfuls. They beat him. They slapped him. They punched him. They put a crown of thorns on his head and pressed it down. And those thorns were about that long. And they were like a nail. And they pressed it down on his head. And look, Jesus was human like all of us are human. And he cried out in pain. He cried out in agony. 
They whipped him. They beat him. They mocked him. They laughed at him. They gambled over his clothing. There is that whole idea of the humiliation of it, the emotional humiliation, the the extreme pain. But the thing that Jesus was struggling with in the garden, yeah, part of it was that. But you know what the biggest part of his struggle in the garden was? That he's about to take Pharaoh's sin. On that cross, when he's hanging on that cross, he's about to take the sin of all men past, all men present that day, and all men in the future. And that is the agony. That is the agony of the garden. That is the pain. That is the suffering in the garden. And, and he was, it was bearing down on him the acceptance of God's wrath for his sin and that separation from the Father that he would sense, that he would feel. That is where Jesus' struggle was. Taking your sin and mine. Because we couldn't pay for our sin. We pay for our sin. We spend eternity in hell. He pays for our sin and we accept his payment. We spend eternity in heaven because he paid a debt we couldn't pay. You owe a debt you can't pay. You, wanna, you say, I'm going to feed the poor. I'm going to give more money to the church. I'm going to serve in the nursery. I'll even serve in there where, the, where they do those barn burner diapers. And I'll change them. I'll change them all. It's not enough because you can't save yourself. You can't do enough to redeem yourself. You can't save yourself. You owe a debt you can't pay. And here he is, Jesus giving full concentration in this prayer. The passion of this prayer, again, the emotional part. It shows up physically, listen, and the sweat of Jesus becomes literally mixed with blood. So I know a lot of you have had that question during this series. Some of you have come up to me and said, Pastor, was that real? I mean, is it real blood? And I knew this was coming, and I didn't want to... Give you my sermon then, but I wanted, I mean, I wanted to, but I had to hold it back. I want to tell you about it today. Yes, it was real. It was literal. There is a condition called thrombosis. It's a medical term. It suggests a very, very dangerous condition known as hematidrosis. And that is the infusion of blood into a person's perspiration. And it is caused by extreme anguish and extreme physical pain. Subcutaneous capillaries dilate in the skin and burst mingling blood with sweat. So Jesus is praying and his body is soaked in sweat and he is praying. He is praying. I I think about that prayer. And I think about it and I I shut my eyes when I read this scripture and I shut my eyes when I'm preparing this sermon and I lean back in my God chair called a recliner and I think about it and I think about God, I think about Jesus crying out. And I think about the noises that must have been coming from him in the garden. And I think about how that he was limited by the human part of him. So he felt what we would have felt. He felt the pain we would have felt physically. And I can just hear him moaning and groaning. And probably some people would be around that and go, that makes me uncomfortable. I'm telling you, we need to be made uncomfortable by what Jesus went through for us in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he bore it. 
and he took it, the divine wrath of his father when he had done no wrong. That sense, that feeling of separation from his father. And he starts to shed blood through his perspiration. And he just soaks his clothes with sweat and blood mingled together, dripping on the ground. And he was there for a long time. I mean, when you read that passage, it doesn't sound like he was there very long. I mean, there's one sentence of his prayer in the passage we just read from Luke 22, just one sentence. But again, we believe it is the centerpiece of all that he prayed. But I think Jesus was there for hours. No doubt he was there for hours. And I can just see him standing. I can see him walking. I can see him praying. I can see him at times just laying down on the dirt. And there's that blood and there's that, that sweat and it's all mixed together. And he is laying there saturated and he goes through all of this and he is in the middle of going through the worst part of that time in the garden. And I don't get this and I don't know how in the world it's possible, but somehow he pauses and goes to check on his disciples. And i got to tell you, that brings tears to me because that's us. That's us. The humility, the self-denial of getting up from what I just described, this thrombosis, this, this agony, getting up from that and saying, I've got to go check on my disciples. And he finds them... Sleeping. Then he goes back to prayer. And he continues the process until finally the agony is over. Now, I read it and read it and read it. And I read it in Matthew and I read it in Mark. And I just, I just read this story everywhere. It's recorded in the Bible and it does, there's no statement of triumph that Jesus is finally through the battle. There's no statement of triumph that says, Jesus rose and in great victory, King of kings and Lord of lords. I mean, if I wrote the Bible, I'd have wrote that in there. All it says at that moment of triumph when this battle is over, this temptation, this war with the enemy, this war with Satan, it says he rose from prayer. And we just know from that that yes, God had allowed it, but Satan had given his best shot and he lost again. He gave his best shot. And Jesus is triumphant. One writer wrote it this way, and I had to include it in my notes. He said, when Jesus got up off the ground, he was bloodied but unbowed. He was bloody but victorious. He was the bloody overcomer. Soaked in blood and sweat. He came to the disciples and found them sleeping from sorrow. I mean, they should have been praying. I mean, you know, I've asked this question before. Let's ask it again. If Jesus needed to pray, what about those disciples, do you think? What about us? Now, I want you to understand, they were not sleeping because they were tired or because it was night or because it was dark or because it had been a long, busy week or because they had had a huge meal or because they had been on some long walk. 
The Bible tells us why they were sleeping. Luke makes it clear why they were sleeping. They were sleeping from sorrow. So when you look at that to understand those three words, sleeping from sorrow, you come to the conclusion that they didn't fully understand at all everything that was happening. But from their perspective, all that Jesus had built during his earthly ministry was on the edge of total collapse. And that collapse seemed inevitable. Fatalism. And I meet Christians that this is true of. Fatalism had crept in to these disciples, these men of God. And they were thinking, what's there to pray about? Why should we pray? We've lost We've lost, and I'm amazed at the Christians I talk to who have allowed fatalism to creep in. He warned them to pray. He told them to pray. He told them this was going to be the battle of their life. Now, he would pray for them, of course. He was the high priest. He intercedes for his own. He's going to pray for them. But I'm telling you, man, the application here is, hey, you guys are supposed to be praying too. And that's a word right here in this house today. Hey, Bridge. Hey, Pastor Farrell. I am uh, the one who is on the right hand of the Father. And I do live to make intercession for you. And I am praying for you. But hey, man, wake up. Bridge, wake up, Pastor Farrell. Wake up, bridge staff. Wake up, elders. Wake up, owners. Wake up, ministry directors. Wake up, volunteers. Wake up, bridge family. It's time to go to our face in prayer before God as we never have before because we're about to face a dark time. Luke condenses his response really into one statement. He says, Jesus says, rise and pray so that you won't go under. Rise and pray so that you won't enter into temptation, so you won't be overcome by temptation. He said it to them repeatedly, but every time he said it and returned to them, he found them asleep again until he came the third time. And when he got there the third time, he went, that's it. That's enough. Everybody get up. Mark 14, the hour has come. Behold, the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up. Let's be going. The one who betrays me, who was it? Judas. Is at hand. No more time to pray. We had our prayer time. It's over now. No more time to prepare. If you're not prepared now, I'm I'm praying for you. I feel sorry for you because it's over. So when I read that, I think about through prayer now, at this point, our Lord's ready to go face the enemy, man. He's ready. He's prepared. He got up from prayer. That was it. He is triumphant over temptation, and so he is ready to face the enemy. But in contrast, I see the disciples here who are going to face the enemy, and they're going to be defeated by lack of prayer. They couldn't stay awake. Our Lord has won the victory by defeating the prince of hell. He stands there before them covered with bloody sweat on his precious face. His clothes are soaked through, but he's ready. He's prepared. He's looking rough. But he's ready. He's prepared. He's ready to face Judas, one of his own disciples, a betrayer. He's ready to face the kisses of Judas. I remember we used to do that Easter drama here, and it was so powerful. How many of you remember the cross and the crown? Pastor Jimmy did a great job leading us in that. And how many, you remember the garden scene? 
You remember how we typified it, that, that Judas would walk up and give Jesus a little peck? You know what? When you read that, when you really read about Judas coming up and kissing him, he kept, he kept on kissing him. Man, I'd have been like, just get back. He just, I can just see Judas kiss him back and forth on each cheek and Jesus standing there in full submission having called Judas earlier the devil, letting Judas kiss him. How can he do that? How can he take that? Because prayer had prepared him for this. He would face the Jewish leaders who should be celebrating him, rejoicing in him. He faced the Roman soldiers. He's ready to go to the cross, and he will prophesied in Genesis 3, crush the head of the serpent. He's ready to do it. He's ready now to be made sin for Pharaoh Hardest. And he is ready to be made sin for you. He is ready to become sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. He's ready. He's going to triumph over death. He's going to burst out of that grave. He's going to be exalted to the right hand of the Father as King of kings and Lord of lords. The last temptation of Jesus is done. The bitter cup is in his hand. He is about to drink it. And boys and girls, it is not trembling. He's ready to drink it. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Philip Bliss wrote these words many years ago. Man of sorrows, what a name. For the Son of God who came ruined sinners. Right here, right here. To reclaim. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Now I want us to get all Pentecostal up in here today. Are y'all ready? I want you to shout with me the last line of that stanza. Hallelujah, what a Savior. You ready? Let's go. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Because we were the disciples asleep in that garden. How does this apply? Listen to Hebrews 12, verses 3 and 4. Just consider I love this, man. It's so pastoral. It's like Paul saying, uh, when you get all whiny, when you get all whiny and you get all critical and you get all, why me, Lord? He said, just consider and meditate on him who endured from sinners such bitter hostility and consider it, what he went through, consider it, in all, uh, consider it all in comparison with your personal trials, and if you will, you will not grow weary and lose heart. Isn't that powerful? You know why we get weary and lose heart? Because it's all about us, baby. It's all about me. It's all about my comfort. It's all about I'm the only one on the team who showed up, and I tell you, I'm just so discouraged. You know what you need to do? You need to do what I need to do when I get like that. You need to go to Hebrews 12 and 3, and you need to consider and meditate on him who endured from sinners such bitter hostility against himself, and if I will do that and compare that to what I'm going through, I will not grow weary, I will not lose heart, and I'm going to add a little bit to this verse, and I will not be all whiny. 
Look at verse 4. Because you have not yet struggled to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin. It's almost like Paul saying, when you've gone through the garden like Jesus did, then you probably could whine a little bit. He says, you haven't, you, you haven't gone through the garden. You haven't, you haven't shed blood through your sweat in your striving against sin. You say, what about those angels? What about that angel deal? Well, let's look at it. Hebrews 1, let's back up to Hebrews 1, chapter, 13, uh, chapter 1, verse 13 and 14. Therefore, angels are only servants. Spirits sent to care for people who will inherit salvation. And when you study that, inherit salvation means heaven. In other words, if you're a believer, if you're a Christian, if you're a follower of Jesus, if you've committed your life to Jesus, angels are only servants of his. Spirits, and what are they for? They are sent to care for you. Look at Psalm 91.11. For he will give his angels charge concerning you to guard you in all your ways. So that, and I, I don't know what that's like. You know what? I'm confident that angels have ministered to me when I had no idea. Because the Bible says we entertain their presence in what state? We are what? Unaware. We don't know. I don't know if we freaked you out enough here today, but let me just freak you out a little more. You say, well, you're the first preacher that ever got me to shout in church. Well, hallelujah. Hallelujah. What? What a Savior. But if God opened your spiritual eyes right now, I don't mean your human eyes, but I mean if he opened up your spiritual eyes so you could see what was going on in the spiritual world, in the heavenlies, there would be a war going on over you for this service. It would freak you out. I'm telling you, above us right now, there are swords drawn. And God's warrior angels are fighting for the success of this service. Let me ask you something. If you think Satan had total access to this service today, do you, don't you think he could have ruined it? There's a barrier. There's a wall. There are warriors who go to battle for us every Sunday. And listen to me, they go to battle for you all during the week and you don't even know it because you're God's kids. Thank God for that. One old preacher said, the, angel, the angels are always looking at God's face ready to go to the aid of those he loves. And I just love that sentence because it made me picture the angels just staring at God and God goes, you know, in there. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Do you love him? Do you love Jesus? Do you, do you praise God for what Jesus has done for you? Do you know when, when that garden stuff was going on, it was you, man. It was you. You say, well, I don't even know if I want him. I don't even know if I, it doesn't even matter all that. It doesn't even matter. He did it for you anyway. He did it for you. You can reject him, you can mock him, you can laugh at him, you can scoff. I'm telling you, he did it for you. He loves you. He loves you. He weeps for you now. He wept in the garden. Let me tell you something, Jesus hadn't stopped weeping. 
He weeps for you. He loves you. He wants you to be one of his. He wants to cover you. He wants to protect you. He wants to empower you. He wants to give his angels charge over you. Stop pushing back, man. Give in. Surrender. Submit. Give your life to him. We're about to take communion right now. And the Bible says when you take communion that you need to stop. And you need to look at yourself. You need to examine yourself. So I'm going to ask you guys to do that. Where are you with God? Where are you in your relationship with God? I mean, are you going to drink that cup and eat that bread in honor of Him, knowing your life doesn't honor Him? I hope not. I hope you'll do what the Bible says and look at yourself. I'm talking to everybody here. And just, if you've got sin that needs to be dealt with and you've been pushing it to the side and you won't deal with it, you don't have the courage to deal with it, I want you to deal with it in this service. I want you to deal with it right now. We're going to pray in just a minute. And when we pray, I want you to just, I want you to own that thing that you know is between you and God. And let's say, hey, God, I'm ready to offer that up. I'm ready to uncover that. I'm going to open this little tiny closet door in my heart that I've kept shut and locked and wouldn't let you in. I'm letting you in today. I want you to clean the house because, God, when I take this communion, I want to know everything between me and you is good to go. And I'm talking to everybody. Let a man, let a woman, at the time of communion, examine themselves. I love communion. We want everybody to participate in that. In that. We're not asking anybody not to participate, but I'm going to tell you, it's serious. It is not to be taken lightly. When you partake of communion, you are saying, I honor God. I honor the work of Jesus on the cross. I honor his resurrection from the grave, and I do this in remembrance of what he did for me. So let's pray. And you open your heart right now. And let God do a work in you before you take this cup. Father, take this life of mine, this heart of mine, this mind of mine, and reveal to me, Lord, where I'm pushing back. Reveal to me, Lord, where I am sinning and I won't own it. Where I'm being rebellious and I won't own it where I'm fighting against you and I won't admit it. Reveal that to me, God. Show that to me. I mean, God, I'm the pastor of the bridge and people look at me and they're like, oh man, I know he's good. God, you know there are times me and you are not good and I am not in a good way and, and I need you to deal with me, God. And if there's something in my life with me this morning where I'm pushing back against you and, and I don't want your will in my life and, and I'm holding on to some attitude, some sin, some practice you're not, you're not um, wanting me to have in my life, then reveal that to me. God, I can't pray for anybody else really until I've prayed for myself. I, I offer myself to you for cleansing. I offer myself to you today for sanctification for purifying me, God, that I might be able to partake of this communion in a way that would bring you honor. In the name of Jesus. And everybody said...